Hi, everyone. This is Liram Hirolao, current kicker for the Carolina Panthers, former CFL Grey Cup champion uh, with the Toronto Argonauts. Just wanted to let you know you're listening to the Pro Sports Podcasters. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome back to the Process Podcasts. I am your co-host, Mr. Neewells Bruce, a.k.a. NWB, and I am joined by the talented Mr. Justin Williams. Justin, how are you doing? Oh, better now that I'm actually talking to you. It's been a minute. It has been a minute. It's almost like there was a, a timeout called between our last chat. But uh, that timeout's over. We're back on the field, and we're ready to get into some football. Canadian football, as it were. And give a shout-out to uh, one of our affiliates, Sports Interaction. They can hook you up with a bonus if you head to our website, um, But now that we've got that out of the way, it's time to introduce our guest. He's a former journalist for the Toronto Star. He's a historian with the Canadian Football League. And he's the author of the book covering all things 1991 and the Toronto Argonauts. It is Mr. Paul Woods. Paul, how's it going? It's going great. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to have you on. And, mate. The 1991, the year of the rocket, it takes me back. I, I wasn't in Toronto at the time, but I did know a little bit about it by osmosis. What inspired you to write that book? Uh, well, I mean, I, uh, I wrote a book previously. About 10 years ago, I wrote a book about the 1983 Argonauts. Uh, uh, it was a, that was a, a team that was I was very fond of, it, dear, dear to my heart, I guess you'd say, and uh, um, it was a story of them, you know, sort of overcoming, you know, 31 year drought to win the gray cup. And it was a great story. And I, I have very strong, uh, affection for, for that era of, of the Argonauts and that team. But even as I was writing that book, I, I knew I would eventually have to write about the 1991 season because it was just such an incredible year. Uh, I, you know, the Argonauts have been playing football under that name for almost 150 years, since 1873, so they're coming up to their 150th birthday. Uh, and of all those years, I, I, I feel confident in saying, although, I mean, I obviously don't know a lot about what happened in 1885 and places and years like that, but uh, I think 1991 was the, the wildest, most magical, mesmerizing, electric, crazy year in the history of the Argonauts. So, so the, the, the genesis of it really dates back to about 2012 when I started the other book, uh, and then in 20, uh, at the end of 2016, early 2017, I actually embarked on this project and started doing all the, all the research and interviews and so on that led to the book coming out just a little over a year ago. There we go. Now, you're obviously based in, in the Toronto area. Are you a, have you been an Argonauts fan or have you just covered the team? A fan. I, I grew up as a fan. I, I became a, a big fan as a kid in the late 60s. I became a really dedicated, diehard fan 
uh, right at the end of the 1976 season. I don't know exactly why, but I just decided at that point, if you know, I love the team. If I'm going to be a fan, I should be a really serious fan, a really serious, hardcore, dedicated fan. So I started documenting things. I started, you know, keep initially started making scrapbooks of, of stories in the newspapers. And eventually that became way too hard to sort of, you know, do an actual scrapbook. But I still kept accumulating all these newspaper clippings, which I've been I've been accumulating them now for 45 years. It's ridiculous. I got a ridiculous amount of paper that I that I own that I'm I don't know what I'm going to eventually do with it. But uh, but it's sort of like a historical record of the teams, uh, everything that's happened with the team over that period. You know, back in the day when uh, we were just learning, we were just being able to, technology allowed you to record television programs for the first time using a thing called a VCR. I got a VCR in 1983 and I started taping games. And uh, so I've just been going ever since. I, uh, I, uh, I, I follow the team as a fan. I did, as you said, I worked as a journalist for many years, although most of that time I did not cover sports. I was mostly an editor. I did cover sports for two years in the mid-80s in Calgary, actually the late 80s, 86 to 88. I was I was based in Calgary, and I covered the Calgary Stampeders, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and I've covered a few Argonauts games here and there over the years uh, for the Canadian press when I worked for them. Uh, but mostly I was able to be a fan. I, I, was, I was able to sort of keep my journalism hat and my fan hat separate. I didn't have to be, you know, quiet in the press box because I wasn't in the press box. I was in the stands watching the games and cheering. But following them with sort of, I guess you'd say, the, the attention uh, to detail that a journalist would bring. There we go. That's a fine balance. And if I could have that uh, opportunity, I'd definitely be doing that. Have a little bit of fandom, but still be able to bring the analysis required to, to cover the team as closely as you have. Now, speaking of fandom, Justin? Yeah, so when you're talking about kind of the, cl- not say the classics, this isn't classic, but my introduction and in- how I kind of fell in love with uh, the good old Toronto Argonauts it was actually back in 2017. I had known about them, obviously, being from Mississauga, but it just wasn't a big thing. But uh, I fell in love with the year with Ricky Ray, and they uh, had that really weird record. They they won the Grey Cup nine and nine. Yeah, was a with a fifty like a five hundred split. That that was interesting. Who do you think, personally, with with all of your history, who do you think is the best quarterback to ever wear blue and white? Well, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that it's Doug Flutie, but he didn't last very long. He was we he, we only had him for the last two years of his eight years in the CFL. But but Doug Flutie was the greatest player that ever played Canadian football. I don't I, I would challenge anybody to find me a better one. He he was just absolutely superb uh, for in his you know his two years in BC, his four years in Calgary, and then his two final seasons in Toronto, where he was the, completely on the top of his game. Uh, the Argos, he led the Argos in. 96 and 97 to 34 wins and just six defeats back-to-back gray cups many of those wins were dominant performances it was a it was a stacked team it wasn't only doug he had, he had lots of talent around him but he was just a master but i've been blessed and fortunate to to, to see some other fantastic quarterbacks my favorite quarterback of all time would have probably be condridge holloway who was in the early 80s to the mid 80s uh, I, as I said, I wrote the story about the, the 1983 Argonauts winning the Grey Cup, and it was actually a three-year arc. It was the, the story tells the 
the, the tale of 81, 82, and 83. 81 being the worst season in, in team history, two, two wins 14. in 14, yeah. yeah. And, but they had many of the guys who were still there two years later when they won the Grey Cup, and one of those guys was Condridge Holloway. And he was, he was an extremely exciting individual to watch. He could, he could scramble, he could throw on the run, uh, and he was an incredible leader. Uh, so in some ways, my favorite quarterback of all of them, Ricky Ray was obviously a superb quarterback and much different than, than Holloway, not a scrambler, precision passer, the most accurate passer, I think probably it's fair to say in CFL history, the greatest deep corner route you're ever going to see. He would hit guys on the corner route deep. Invariably, he got it right where it had to be. Damon Allen, who, who was the quarterback of the 2004 champions, was also a fantastic quarterback. And we were fortunate to have him towards the end of his career, but incredible. Incredibly, even though he was in his 20, 25th, 23rd, 24th season by the, by the time he finished, I mean, he won the Grey Cup in 2004 and was the most outstanding player in the CFL in 2005 at the age, I think, of 40 or 41, and he was a grandfather at that point. So there have been some great quarterbacks, and I'm going to give a shout-out to the current one. I, he's a polarizing figure, and a lot of fans do not like him. I love McLeod Bethel-Thompson. I think he's a tremendous leader. I think he's far better than most people credit him for and I and I believe they can win the Grey Cup with them this year. I was about to say I feel like McLeod Bethel Thompson is the guy to help lead us in the back. Uh, but personally, what do you think McLeod does need to work on? Because he's not perfect. For me, I feel like it's uh, it's anything to do with his backside. He doesn't like to pivot too much. That's what I watch, anyways. Well, you're probably bringing more analysis than I would, Justin. It sounds. I mean, I I, I would say the, to, for me that the the issues with with McLeod are he's just got to get more consistent. He he he's hot and cold. Typically especially this season, he's cold at the start of games and then he heats up later on. And that's, that's, I mean, that's better than the opposite, right? It's, you'd rather be strong in the third and fourth quarter. If you had to be weak somewhere, it's better to be weak in the early part of the game. And the, the Argos have a good enough defense to keep them in the game. So if, you know, if he can get through to halftime, like yesterday, tie it at eight, eight, eight apiece, and then pull out a couple of touchdowns in the second half, we're fine. So consistency. One thing I think McLeod does is he, gets a little overexcited at times. I think he puts too much on some of his passes. There are times when I think a little more touch and a little gentler touch would, would be a good idea. Sometimes balls go flying through guys' fingers, and I feel like, man, you didn't have to rifle it quite that hard. I think he could probably, he would be the first to tell you he can throw a better deep ball. He's, he's inconsistent with the deep ones. He's certainly not Ricky Ray. He doesn't always hit the corner pattern or the, or the, deep, the deep streak up the middle as well as Ricky did. Uh, although I will say, I think there have been a number of occasions this season when I don't think the receiver ran the correct route, and he put the ball where it should be, and the receiver wasn't there. Yeah, I thought that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Brandon Banks is a great player, and he scored two touchdowns yesterday. I'm glad he's here. But I don't think Brandon runs the most disciplined pass patterns. You know what? That's probably uh, the most accurate thing I've heard all day. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's why you're on the show, Paul. You give good insights. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate it. I, I, that, that thing about the backside, I'm going to watch for that, Justin. That's an interesting comment. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm a 49ers fan. That's my Ooh. NFL team. So I, I knew about McLeod, Bethel, Bethel Thompson before. Most of Toronto did. And, and yeah, there, there's some there's some mechanical issues. But at the same time, I think he has what it takes to, to keep them at the top of the East. And once you get to the, to the playoffs, anything can happen, right? Yeah, well, I wouldn't mind telling you just a quick story about McLeod and why I like him so much. I mean, I... 
In 2019, I was doing research for the, for the book, The Year of the Rocket, and one of the things I had to do was go to Winnipeg to do a bunch of interviews because the, the 91 Grey Cup had been played in Winnipeg, and the Bombers and the Argonauts had a gigantic rivalry back in that era, so there was a number of people to interview in Winnipeg, and I, I timed the, the trip to Winnipeg to be there when the Argos went to Investors Group Field to play the Blue Bombers. And I got tickets to the game, and I went, and it's a fantastic facility, great place to watch a game. Um, and the opening kickoff, the Bombers took it. Lucky Whitehead took it to the house for a touchdown uh, for the Bombers. And the Argos didn't go anywhere on their first possession, punted it away. Uh, Winnipeg's kick returner almost took it to the house for a second touchdown, and they were in the end zone about two plays later. It was 14 nothing, practically before you know we were three minutes old. The game was three minutes old, and 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 it was obviously going to be a beatdown. That was a, that was a year the Argos finished four and 14. They had a not a good coaching staff, and and some of the players that had been part of the 2017 team were getting a little older and a little less interested in playing, and and it was just it was just a, a, a rotten Argonaut team was in the making. That was in July, so it was only about five or six games into the season at that point, but it was pretty clear the Argos weren't going to be a, a strong contender. I think they ended up losing that game something like 45 to 21 or something like that. But I was just astounded watching McLeod Bethel-Thompson, the, the, the effort he was putting into that game and the body language that he showed. He, was, he didn't care they were down 14 nothing three minutes mm. in. He was not going to let that defeat him and defeat them. He was determined to try to do everything he could to win that game. Even when it was a lost cause, he was busting his ass. And I just, I fell in love with the guy that night and I've loved him ever since. I just, I just think he's the kind of leader you want. I, everything I've heard and read uh, suggests that the team responds incredibly well to him. He, he ended up winning the job last year. He, he took the job away from Nick Arbuckle, who they'd signed to big money and was, he was seen as the future. And Ryan did when he, to his credit as a rookie coach, realized Bethel Thompson is the guy to lead this team and he gave him the job and they ended up trading Arbuckle. So yeah, I, I truly do believe the guy can, he could, he could be on the winning side in November when the Grey Cup is handed out in Regina. They've got enough talent on that team to win. They've done some, some things I haven't loved personnel-wise this year. They've made a few coaching mistakes. And McLeod hasn't been perfect. He's had some ups and downs. But I, I expect before the season ends, he's going to have put together a game for the ages. And it wouldn't surprise me if it happens on the final Sunday in November. There we go. That, that would be quite a story, especially with the, the way the West is dominated. Yep. Uh, for, for Toronto, to, like as their rowing ancestors have done, to just skull through at the end and just take it, <laughs> that would be quite a story. Well, you know, I think Justin said he started following in 2017 when they were nine and nine and still won the Grey Cup, and that I think that's the second time in a row. I think they were also nine and nine in 2012 when they won the Grey Cup, and maybe only ten and eight in 2004. So they they have a bit of a recent history of winning when they're not a dominant team in the regular season. Uh, they certainly beat stronger teams on paper in those Grey Cups. Uh, they and they and they were the only team that gave the, the the only team that beat the full strength Winnipeg Blue Bombers last year. The the Bombers lost a couple of games late in the season when they were resting people, uh, and they gave them a hell of a game this year and, and arguably should have won. They 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 were one point away from tying the game with a late touchdown, 
And in retrospect, I wish they'd gone for two because I believe Andrew Harris would have bowled it in and would have got him a one-point win. So if they end up playing Winnipeg, I, don't, I like our chances. I, I definitely like the chances against Calgary. And I with BC, with, with Rourke out probably for the year, I, I don't see any team in the West that would be, a, would be something that you have to be too afraid of. Well, there we go. Watch this face. <laughs> no, he's right. Absolutely. When Toronto beat uh, Winnipeg last year to give them their only loss of the season, I was like, damn, look at us go. <laughs> We're not yeah, that bad. Yeah, that's and everyone, right. like, everyone fears the West, but it's like, okay, hold on. Like Toronto is top dog for a reason. Don't get me wrong. Like Hamilton's a strong team sometimes. Last year, they were more consistent. Obviously, they went to the Grey Cup final as Nee was actually present for when uh, actually we were all there. Nee, Kobe, and myself. Oh, nice. We watched, uh, yeah, we watched... Uh, Hamilton eliminate Toronto. That was that was no caliente. That was that was a depressing game. That oh. Hamilton Dwayne Evans would put was on fire in that second half and that one crazy play right before halftime when he stripped the ball out of the yep. out of the hands of the Argo after after the interception. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that, that would just killed just killed them. Killed the mood, killed the vibe. Yeah, it was yeah. not a good time. No. But no. speaking of the heritage classic between the two of them, are you aware, Mr. Paul, that there is a documentary coming out? Yes, I am. And in fact, I've seen a, a four and a half minute excerpt about McLeod Bethel Thompson. And it's, a, it's an amazing, amazingly interesting thing. It's a, this has got LeBron James behind it. It's gonna, this is going to be really interesting to see. I am so excited. I'm going to give it to Nee and Kobe for Christmas. Um, <laughs> Because they're, I'm slowly trying to convince them to become CFL fans, slowly but surely. Well, thank you. You fight the good fight for sure, Justin. That knee, you, you got it. You got to keep giving it a chance, man. It may not be. It may not have all the money the NFL has and and the te- the hype and the television coverage, but it's a good it's a good brand of football and it's been very entertaining this year. It was not that entertaining last year, but it's it's back to the old entertainment value that we're accustomed to. I will that that I will accept and I will agree with that the the way it's been going this year definitely has been there's been a lot of highlights every week there's been new highlights I see Fahan Lauji and uh, Matthew Shinetti, friends of the show that they're they're always talking about new stuff that's happened on the weekend so I have to agree with you there it's definitely very exciting yeah well I saw I saw a stat yesterday that sixty three percent of the games this year have been have been decided in the last three minutes so that's what you want right you want to go right to the end not knowing who's going to win. Uh, and so, two-thirds of the time, that's happening. There we go. That's what you want to see. Now, just harking back to the halcyon days of the the league and the the Argonauts, remember when the league made a foray into the States? Oh, yeah. You know, franchises in Baltimore and whatnot? Yep. Could that have gone a different way? Uh, yeah, well, certainly they, they, the league could have done a better job of finding uh, more stable ownership. They had a few pretty dodgy, sketchy people owning some of the teams. There were some problems. I mean, it, it's funny. I get, I get into it a little bit in the, in the, the year of the rocket. It's just a little bit beyond the, the scope of the book, which mostly covers 90 to 93. But expansion was actually kind of a brainchild of the, of the group that came in and bought the Argonauts, which is Bruce McNall, Wayne Gretzky, and John Candy. And, mm-hmm. and Candy, in fact, you know, helped find some of the, the franchisees for the U.S. Uh, markets and so on. There, there were some problems with it. I mean, you know, they, there were some some physical problems. They was they couldn't fit Canadian football size fields in the stadiums down there, so they had to make some accommodations for that. There were issues with personnel rosters. If you couldn't force Canadians onto the rosters in the U.S. teams, but you you did in Canada, it was you know there was a, a, an import non-import ratio. And so, only, so amazingly, given that there were, there ended up five five American teams in in '94 and '95. 
five, and amazingly, uh, only one of them, the Baltimore Stallions, were smart enough to really stack their roster, and and Baltimore ended up, of course, winning the Grey Cup in '95. It was the the problem. One of the problems that the leagues had, the league had was that there was a chance to sell it in the summer, but once fall gets here, in places like Birmingham and Memphis and San Antonio. Uh, you know, high school football and, and college football and NFL takeover for high schools Friday nights, colleges Saturdays, and NFL is Sunday. It didn't really leave a place on the calendar for the CFL to play. And of course, we, we play in September, October, November. So that was a problem. But I'd also argue in the book that even though expansion only will last for three years and will ultimately be viewed as a failure, it in some ways saved the league. It, it, it bought time for the league to get its, its act together when it was in real dire straits. There were so many teams on the verge of collapse up here in Canada. And it also brought in some cash from, from franchise fees that was needed. So I think in, in retrospect, the history books will, will say, will call it a failure. I would say it was a failure, but it was a failure that, that was also a salvation for the CFL. As to what could have been done differently, it's a tough one. I mean, they could have maybe picked some different markets. Um, they certainly they certainly chased after everybody that was looking for them, and there were some embarrassing moments. There was the the time they were about to announce a team in Florida, in Orlando. They had a live news conference uh, set up, satellite feed, and nobody ever showed up at the mic in in, in Orlando. The, the 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 ownership group bailed before the news conference could even take place. So there was a lot of mess like that. You know, they 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 were going to go in in the first year. They were going to go into Sacramento and San Antonio. And then literally at the, on the day of the CFL's Coach of the Year dinner, San Antonio didn't show up. And I was actually covering, I was reporting on the Coach of the Year dinner for the Canadian press that night. And uh, the commissioner, Larry Smith, was frantically trying to evade us journalists as we were chasing after him through the kitchen of the hotel because he didn't want to talk to the press about the fact that one of our teams has just disappeared before it could even start. Wow. So yeah, lots of lots of lots of stuff did not go well. Uh, it's it's a weird blip in history that there's an American team on the on the Grey Cup, and that was a that was a very strong team, that's for sure. There you go. Sounds like the third book by Paul Woods has already written itself. Well, it won't be my third. I am working on another book that that I I, I can't give the uh, I won't give the uh, the uh, details about yet. I'm not at liberty to do that, but I will say it's a book that should be of interest to to uh, football fans on both sides of the border. Uh, but there has been a book written about the the Stallions, uh, the, the 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 two years of the Baltimore Stallions. And it was a it was a pretty successful franchise, unlike Las Vegas and and Birmingham and Shreveport uh, and Memphis. The Stallions worked. I mean, they they were they put more than thirty thousand people a game into into the old uh, Memorial Coliseum in Baltimore, where the where the Baltimore Colts used to play. The only reason that that team left was because the NFL had moved a team to Baltimore. They put the, they put the Ravens in there to replace the Colts, mm-hmm. and that was the death of the Baltimore Stallions. Uh, but they could have kept going potentially, although you know the writing was on the wall by then for Birmingham, Memphis, and San Antonio, and Shreveport, and Sacramento. So, indeed, well, it definitely put the game on the map for international audiences like mine because uh, yep. I definitely learned a lot more about Canadian football. So it, it wasn't all bad, but uh, it's definitely a, a chapter in the in the league's history. Mm-hmm. Now, I do have a question for you because you apparently seem to be like the encyclopedia, Wikipedia, <laughs> CFLopedia. Um, 
very famous clip from The Simpsons where they talk about the Saskatchewan Rough Riders facing the Ottawa Rough Riders. <laughs> yes. Can you can you explain to me, like personally, I have no idea what that conundrum was about the two Rough Riders. Why there were two teams with the same name? I, you know, I, ridiculously, I can't even give you the the, the true story. Because, although I have read it, I just I haven't absorbed the details. It's certainly been written about. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that what happened was that when when the two, I mean, the the the, the team started playing in those two cities in Ottawa and Regina at a time when there was no crossover between the the, the east and west. Uh, the 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 CFL as we know it. Today, the the official launch of the CFL was 1958. What people think of as the modern era of the 19 of the of the nine team CFL was in 1954 when the BC Lions were formed. You know, for the the early years of Canadian football, East played East, West played West. Eventually, I think in 1921, they started crossing over for a Grey Cup championship that involved West and East. But that was the only time they they met. It was the Grey Cup. The one team would come out of the West and would come to would come to Toronto or Ottawa or Montreal or Hamilton, wherever the Grey Cup was being played, and would would represent the West. And it took a while before a Western team was strong enough to beat an Eastern team. So I think the the what were originally the Regina Rough Riders and then became the Saskatchewan Rough Riders formed in Regina without probably even anybody being aware there was an Ottawa Rough Riders. Uh, that's probably the simplest way to answer the question. I, I'm sure there's a lot more nuance than that that I don't know, so I'm not quite the CFLopedia that I that I'm cracked up to be. But uh, it is it is one of the odd things about about CFL football. And you know now we at least have different name team in Ottawa. Although frankly, I'd rather have the Rough Riders than the Red Blacks. I think that's a lousy name. <laughs> that, that's that was a lazy name. They're like, listen, like I imagine it's like a school, like like imagine it's like a classroom, and the teacher, the CFL, assigns a test. All right, guys. Here's an assignment. Go home and come up with a unique name for your team tomorrow. Toronto <laughs> comes back, you know, the Argonauts, whatever it is, right? And then it comes down to like the two doofuses, in this case being <laughs> Regina and Ottawa. And Regina, a bit more of an like, enthusiast, was just like, you know what? I came up with the Rough Riders. And Ottawa was like, can I copy? And it's like, yeah, but make sure you change a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Adds a <laughs> two space. words instead That's of one. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, well, it's different. Go. What? It is a pretty funny thing, and you know, and there were those two teams met in the Grey Cup a few times, right? So the announcers had to say the Rough Riders are on their own thirty-one yard line or whatever. So it, but fans seemed to be able to cope with it. We we old timers got used to it. Well, it was also just probably funny because it just made Canadians that much more. And it did get us on the Simpsons along with the CFL draft. I think there was an episode where they were watching the CFL draft. So, well, the CFL actually made it to Family Guy as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Been on a lot of homicide, which was a great, a great cop show, detective show back in the back in the day. It it had it had the Baltimore Stallions on there, and uh, there's you know somebody should some do like a comprehensive list of the times that there've been references to Canadian football on on American shows. And of course, when almost any time you see an American network show that shows football action, it's CFL action because they can't afford to pay for the rights for NFL action, right? (laughs) So you're always seeing Hamilton play in Toronto on on uh, you know Cheers or something. Thing, right so there you go cheers is such a good show um anyways well actually season one was garbage but moving forward <clears throat> going back to to hamilton what do you think when johnny menzel came and there was so much hype espn was behind it and all that fun jazz do you think it was actually good for for the cfl game or uh yeah good question i mean it you know it was funny because there was certainly a lot of people particularly in the u.s uh, who thought menzel would would dominate 
you know, he'd throw for 6,000 yards. He'd break Warren Moon's records or he'd break, you know, Flutie's records. And, and people up here knew, knew better. It, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, big stars have come up from the States and have failed. Uh, in some cases, they failed miserably. Vince Ferragamo led the Los Angeles Rams to the Super Bowl. Uh, again, they lost to the Pittsburgh Steelers, but he got them to the Super Bowl, and he was on the Montreal Alouettes two years later and was awful as a quarterback. He could not figure out the 12th man on defense. He threw a million interceptions, got benched. It was just a complete disaster. Uh, Ricky Williams, uh, NFL you know, Heisman winner, NFL rushing champ, got suspended for, for smoking pot, came up to the, to the Argonauts in 2006 and people said oh he's going to run for 3,000 yards he ran for 500 yards he was a good he was a very good player that year he he broke his arm and he missed a bunch of games and he was in an offense that was not designed to run run the ball so it was a, it was a complete mismatch of Ricky and the, the offense that he was in and he was very respectful of his time in Canada and you know there was an interesting thing recently where Chad Johnson Ocho Cinco uh, went on some podcast or something and said you know he came up to the Montreal Alouettes and he was expecting to dominate and in the first practice he realized oh my god every single guy out here is good mm-hmm. so i mean i think manzel failing the way he did maybe it gave the cfl a bit more credibility among among people in the states who might have thought it's just a garbage league and then all of a sudden the guy that they think is good fails but i don't know it's hard to say it was a bit of a circus right he got way more hype than he deserved there were way better quarterbacks in the league every team in the league that year had a better quarterback than johnny manzel and they weren't getting on sports center every night like johnny was that's the thing too. Johnny was riding shotgun for Hamilton for like two years, and all of a sudden he gets traded to the Alouettes for a boatload of draft picks and some money, and he's going to start. And now it's on ESPN. I was like, the hell? Yeah, yeah. And he and he and he threw an interception right away, and he just mm-hmm. he just wasn't. Johnny was the wrong guy to do it. He didn't. I don't believe he was into the playbook, and he wasn't. Mm-hmm. He didn't care. He Johnny was about Johnny. He wasn't about a football team. Yeah. No, and that's why he didn't show up to practice, and Alouettes cut him. Like, yeah, yeah, that's no, right. Like, good, that's goodbye. right. Yeah, yeah. This is just a joke, right? But, but I mean, I, some of the guys that have come up, like like Ocho Cinco and Ricky Williams and others, they have they have been respectful, and they have. And you almost invariably, you talk to a guy like that. I mean, Andre Risen came up here after mm. starring in the NFL. There have been a number of them over the years, and sometimes they're coming just at the very tail end of their career, and they might even think that it's a bit of a lark. Yeah, I'll go around and run around for for a, a year, and you know, I don't have to practice that hard. It's not like the NFL where it's where it's you know twenty four seven. But those guys invariably say every athlete on this field could be in the NFL mm-hmm. if the circumstances were different. Uh, it's just that th- th- there's a very thin line. You know, it's funny. You know, I was I was looking into some stuff about McLeod Bethel Thompson, and and uh, you know, I think uh, Nee, you said that you're a 49ers fan, and he's he had a couple of stints with the Niners. Yeah, he was there with with Kaepernick. He was there with uh, Alex Smith, Jer- mm-hmm. Jeremiah Masoli, who's a quarterback up here, was was on the team at one point with them as well, and he came very close to making that roster. He did end up on the Minnesota Vikings roster mm-hmm. for a season. Uh, and then eventually he ran in the rules that were in effect at that time, you could only be on a practice roster for four years. And he, 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 he hit the four year limit. He wasn't allowed to be on a practice roster anymore. So he really had no other shot to make it down there. But there were guys that were in camp with him came out of school at the same time as him were also undrafted uh, free agents who ended up making rosters. The guy that came to mind is a guy named Case Keenum. Uh, uh, I yes. believe Case Keenum might he might be the Bills backup quarterback this year I think. He is, yes. He's yeah, and and he's been on he's been on an NFL roster for the last 10 or 11 years. I think I looked online he's made 44 million dollars in the NFL and he's never been a starting quarterback. He's just been a a journeyman backup. 
I just about guarantee if you stood him side by side with McLeod Bethel Thompson, McLeod Bethel Thompson would throw better passes, would be a better teammate, a better leader. It's a lot of po- football is politics and who knows who. And go. you know, just, if McLeod had gotten into a different circumstance, he might have been he might have been Case Keenum and have 44 million bucks sitting in his bank by now. This episode is brought to you by Sports Interaction, Canada's most trusted sports book with betting options available from every sport you can imagine. From futures and money line betting to real-time live betting during games, Sports Interaction offers its customers the most competitive odds in Canada. So head on over to our website and sign up today as Sports Interaction also has a nice deposit bonus if you click on the link. It's available in every province from coast to coast. And now back to the show. Absolutely, and that raises a good point. This nepotism and this is who you know kind of thing. You you remember the former Argonaut kicker, Grey Cup champion, Liram Hirolahu? Yep. He's also a kicking coach. Yep. Number of times I've seen him get cut by NFL teams. He got cut by the Rams. Yep. He just got cut by the Cowboys, and he also spent time with Washington and Carolina last season. Yep. It's not because he can't kick, because his kicking percentages are a lot better than some of the guys who are getting this spot over him. I feel like he got cut from the Rams because he didn't go to the right college. And then it's not what you know, it's who you know sometimes. Well, that's entirely possible. I'd love to know I'd love to know what, what Liram would say about it. I mean, I, I, I'd always do kind of wonder a little bit with kickers if um, if the different the, the the slightly different rules about around what what equipment they can use matter because of course the up up in Canada you can use a, a little platform mm. to place the ball on a, on a, on a place kick and and I either either it's either they don't use one in the states or it's a different it's a different size or shape or something um, so I kind of wonder about that but yeah I mean like he's a guy who went to, to Western University right they haven't heard of that down there and mm-hmm. we are I mean you know, to be fair we're seeing more and more Canadians are going to the NFL I've some of them are coming out of out of Canadian universities, so it's not as if the NFL is not always looking for talent. They always are looking for talent. But the thing is, you know, they they take ninety five guys to camp, and they gradually cut down to to fifty three. But then they add seventeen of them to a practice roster. So you basically you're you got ninety five guys going for seventy spots, and sometimes it can be as simple as. A guy, you know, he, he pulled a hammy and he missed one day of practice and the guy that's going in, in that spot had a good day that practice. Or it could be, as you say, you know, like, hey, I, I'm going to go with the guy from SMU because I know the coach at SMU and he spoke highly of him, right? So there's, there's, there's politics there for sure. I think, I think uh, Liram Hirolahu is a good example of that. I believe that given the right opportunity, he could he could kick successfully down there. Now, having said that, I mean, Mike Vanderjat went from the Argonauts as a kicker down to the States and had a very long and successful career down there. There you go. So it's not it's not impossible to do, uh, and I think if I if I think if I read this correctly, I think when Hirolahu got cut by Dallas last week, the guy they replaced him with is is uh, a, a guy who was also kicking in the CFL uh, until a couple of years ago. So so it, you know that may that may suggest that it wasn't it wasn't the CFL connection that did it; it was something else. But uh, 
Uh, it's really hard to say, but I do think a lot of it is just pure, almost luck. Like who, who's there looking at you on the one day or, or, you know, did, did you, did so-and-so vouch for you that so-and-so has a lot of respect for, and therefore they're going to, they're going to put more emphasis on that. And sometimes it's about pure numbers, which is silly. You know, who's got the, who bench presses 225 the most times, (laughs) you know, it's, it's not about how fast you can run. It's about how fast you can run with a football, right? And two different things. Exactly right. I will point out his time in Los Angeles. He was passed over for Sam Sloman. Now, Sam Sloman went to a college in Florida, which I believe was the same one that McVeigh went to. Mm. Now, I, I get it. McVeigh's got his ring. He's won his championship. So ends kind of justifies the means there. But it, it just reminded yeah. me of that. That's, that's how, that certainly seems like the fix was in. Yeah. The, yeah. So sometimes some of these Canadian boys, they are a little bit behind before the race even begins. But anyway, yeah. um, that aside, uh, I have to ask, how do we get more bombs on seats Argonauts games? Yeah, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be trying to put together an ownership group to buy the team from LSE. It's a really tough challenge. Um, I, I, the, the, the sad reality, as I see it, is that the, the brand, the, the Argonauts brand, has been allowed to be diminished slowly but surely for the last roughly 45 years. Uh, you can trace it back to about 1978 when a, when a now defunct brewery called Carling O'Keefe bought the team from private ownership and basically allowed it to wither away business-wise throughout the 1980s. They, they had a good team on the field in the 1980s. They won the Grey Cup in 83 for the first time in 31 years and they were, they were competitive and in several Grey Cups. Uh, but they were not spending a dime on marketing the team. And, and it was the exact opposite thing they needed to do. The Blue Jays arrived in Toronto in 1977 and very smartly marketed baseball to young families. Uh, and baseball, you know, has some intrinsic charms. It's a, it's a, it's a sport that you, it's, it's on every day. It's just, you know, it's fun to go and sit in the ballpark and have a hot dog and a beer on a sunny day in the summer. So there's some, some advantages to baseball. And if you lose the game, well, you know what? You're playing again tomorrow. You're going to play 162 of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's advantages that baseball has. But, but Labatt Brewery, the, the rival brewery to Carling O'Keefe, which owned the Blue Jays, they were very smart in marketing that franchise while the Argos were doing nothing, basically. And so that, that took us through a, a decade. And the Blue Jays, of course, were, were, getting, were getting good. They got into the playoffs in 85. I think in 87 and 89, and then uh, by 90, 92 and 93, they won the World Series. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Argos got sold to a guy in 88, Harry Ornest, who was similar to Carling O'Keefe in that he didn't believe in spending money on, on, on marketing and selling the team. So further diminution of the product happened then. Bruce McNall, Wayne Gretzky, and John Candy come in in 91, and there's a massive upswing in interest. Uh, and, and attention and media focus, all that stuff. That was a, that, that year that I wrote about, 91, was, an, it was a crazy, crazy magical year. Thanks to that ownership group coming in and suddenly everything got ignited. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't figure out that they, they, they thought they just turned it around overnight. They, it didn't work that way. They, the attendance went up, but it didn't go up all the way to fill the Sky Dome. And they, instead of continuing to market it hard in year two, 
they pushed the ticket prices up and they made some other mistakes that, that, that let the team go back into the tank. And then there were some other owners after that that were, were either, you know, not very good or in, in a couple of cases, terrible. And so the brand has just been diminishing and diminishing and diminishing slowly but surely all through that time period with, with little occasional blips upward. And now we're left where we are, where there's sort of like, 10, I think there's probably 10,000 really hardcore Argo fans who will go all the time regardless. I'm one of them, I'm proud to say. And there are maybe a slightly growing number of people who are testing it out and going and having a good time. And that's a good thing. We we saw, I think, 15,000 at the last game, and that that's positive. I mean, that by our recent standards, that's a good crowd. And if, if all 15,000 of those guys had a good time at that game, then maybe, you know, two-thirds of them will go again uh and but but they've got us this is a this is a long proposition i i think when when they moved into bemo i i was on record as saying i thought within best case scenario three years worst case scenario five years they could slowly build it back up to get twenty thousand fans in there on a consistent basis now it's clearly that didn't work out and they've been in bemo now for six or seven seasons and we're not there so I think we're now talking like a five to 10 year program to build interest up again. And what you need is you need committed ownership. And I, while I'm thankful that MLSE has kept the Argonauts alive, I don't think MLSE is doing everything it possibly could to get to, to build back excitement and enthusiasm in the greater community. And if they don't do that, I don't think anything's going to help. If, if they actually said we're going to make a five-year plan and we're going to hire marketing people and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're, if we have to give away tickets at a low price to students or young people or, or whatever to get people up into the upper reaches of the stadium and expose them to the product because it's a great product and particularly live. That BMO, BMO Field is a fantastic place to watch a football game. It's a grass field. There's no advertising on the grass. It's, a, it's loud, even with ten or 15,000 in there, the place rocks. And you can't go to a game there and not have a good time. So, but they got to get people going and finding that out. And that takes a lot of being in the community and pushing it. And unfortunately, I don't know that MLSE is going to do that. I don't think they see the payoff coming. I don't think they see the Argonaut brand growing in value the way that they have grown the value of the Leafs and the, and the Raptors and even TFC, amazingly enough. Mm. I mean, according to Forbes magazine, TFC is, you know, valued at $600 million dollars. That's that suggests that if if somebody were to if you were to buy the franchise, that's what it would cost you to 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 get it from MLSE. Is anybody actually willing to pay six hundred million dollars to MLSE for TFC? I doubt it. But nonetheless, it's perceived as being worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The Argos are being perceived as not worth hundreds of millions, not even worth tens of millions. And MLSE, as much as they want to make money on operations, their bigger imperative is to grow the value of their of their overall enterprise. The way the Raptors and the Leafs are now both worth more than $2 billion, they don't see that payoff coming from a, from a nine-team league where nobody gets too excited about the Saskatchewan Rough Riders coming to town. I think that's why they wanted to to get together with the XFL. I was in favor of that. I'm one of the few CFL fans that was in favor of a full-scale merger with the XFL. Let's go from a nine-team league to an 18-team league. Let's have the Argos play New York and Los Angeles as well as Saskatchewan and Winnipeg. We could maintain all of the traditions of Canadian football, I believe, while also exposing 
you know, getting a twice as twice as big a league, twice as much TV inventory, you know, maybe jazz up the rules to make it more exciting and get kids excited about it. I think MLSE was pushing hard for that, and the tradition-bound CFL did not go for it. And I kind of worry that MLSE is kind of throwing up their hands and say, okay, well, we get we give up. So I hope the Argos are still here three for three years from now. I'm not sure it's going to be the case. Well. If they aren't here three or four years from now, are they relocating? Surely you can't fold such a his- historically rich franchise. No, I don't think I don't think there's anywhere to relocate to. You know, I, I mean, I think I think if MLSE really does give up, I think they just turn the keys over to the league and say, "Here you go. We're not, you know, we're not, and let the league try to find another owner. Good luck on that." Given that MLSE controls BMO Field, I mean, you're gonna mm. you're gonna get stuck with bad dates. Even now, even with even with MLSE owning them, the Argos still don't get stuck with don't get the greatest dates. That TFC seems to get priority in there. But a league without a, without a team in Toronto will be will very quickly be a smaller league generating less revenue. Uh, you know, I, I, there's a lot of people out in, in the in the Prairie Provinces. I, I go on to a number of football forums and people in Regina and Winnipeg say, fold them, screw them, screw the Argos, screw Toronto, they don't want a team, we don't need them, CFL would be just fine without them. Yeah, you know what? There will not be the money coming into TSN that comes in now if there's no team in the biggest market in the country. And it wouldn't take long before Vancouver and Montreal followed. And then you're down to a six-team league with two teams in Ontario in smaller cities, four teams out west. And Calgary is pretty tenuous too, as far as I'm concerned. So I, they, the league's got to keep the Argos alive. And one of the things they're they're trying to do now is they've they've they finally agreed to a revenue sharing model where the Argos will actually MLSE will in theory benefit from all the the big revenues generated in Winnipeg and Saskatchewan. They'll get a piece of that action. Uh, it'll be the opposite of what it was in the 70s when Toronto was propping up those teams by putting money into a gate equalization fund. Now it'll be an equalization fund giving the Argos some cash. Out out of the coffers of Saskatchewan and Winnipeg and Edmonton. Is that enough to keep MLSE happy? Maybe. I mean, I, I have a feeling MLSE does not want to be responsible for the death of a 150-year-old brand because that's that's not great for business to, to, to kill something that does have a very loyal following, albeit a small loyal following. And it would and it would definitely not help MLSE's reputation in the rest of the country. And they're, you know, they 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 do perceive I think they perceive the Leafs some, to some extent as Canada's team, not just Toronto's team, and they definitely perceive the Raptors as as Canada's basketball team because they are. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to damage those brands, but they may make a, make a calculation that ah, that that damage will go away after six months. Uh, I hope not. I hope they. I hope they commit. You know, recommit to the Argos. I will say that you know they're they're spending money on the on the product. They're spending to the limit on the on the team. They put the team up in a hotel in Hamilton two nights ago so that they would have no distractions before the Labor Day game. That's the first time that they've ever done that. They fly them charter. They don't fly them commercial. So they're they're spending money on this team, and and they're not getting the return that they would like to get. But I also think if they spent a bit more on marketing and really pushed hard for a few years, they'd see some benefit to it. You got to get new Canadians. You got to get people that didn't grow up with gridiron football. Mm. You've got to do a lot of things to expose people to the product. And I think, frankly, the league has to make the product a little more entertaining. It's it's not as entertaining as it was 30 years ago. There are some rule reasons for that that could that could be fixed quite easily, in my opinion. It you know it used to be that the CFL game was way more entertaining than NFL. 
That's not the case anymore. They're both entertaining, and sometimes the NFL is more entertaining, and the NFL has better TV production, and it's a bigger spectacle. Mm -hmm. So they've got that to contend with. So they should be going to a faster play clock and more plays, more action, more excitement. When I was sort of hoping for this XFL thing, I was thinking, yeah, jazz it up. Let's, let's come up with some new rules that kids are going to go, wow, is that ever cool? And they didn't do it, right? So, <laughs> Paul? so I'm just droning on here. Sorry. No, no you're right. I'm loving it. Yeah, I'm loving it too. I, I was, I was, I was kind of shocked you stopped. I'm like, is he good? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. I, sometimes I, sometimes I, I just bore myself to sleep, right? So I, and we can talk about something more, more enjoyable than that, or we can, we can stay on that topic, whatever you want. I mean, no, I, it's, uh, I, I, I'm glad the Argos are here. I, one of the things I said when that XFL discussion was underway, I said I want to have a football team to go to watch. I love watching live football. And I'm worried that if the Argos do go out of business, there isn't going to be an NFL team here the next day. There's no stadium. There's, you know, that like that, eventually probably the NFL is coming, but I don't see that happening in, in the near future. So if, if the Argos are gone, like, I guess I could go watch the Tiger Cats and it would be, it is CFL football and I enjoy that, but I, I've grown up hating the Tiger Cats. I, I don't want to switch allegiances. So uh, to me, I, a, a, a Toronto Argonauts playing in a combined CFL, XFL would have been way better than no Toronto Argonauts in any league. Uh, now, at least we have the middle ground or, or, or maybe even the best ground, which is Toronto Argonauts playing in the CFL. If that continues forever, great. I can, you know, as long as I'm alive and the Argos are in the CFL, I'm happy. And I hope that is the case. Uh, but if it, if it came to it, my choice was either no, no Argonauts at all or Argonauts in, a, in an American-based league or a league with four downs or a league with 11 men. I would take an Argonauts in an 11-man 11, you know, league or, or whatever because I want to go see the Argonauts play. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of go watch the Argonauts play, their venue is being upgraded over the next three or four years because BMO Field is going to be hosting matches at the Men's FIFA World Cup. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for the Argos? Is, is is an upgraded BMO going to be suitable for them or is it going to be potentially too big? What does that mean for the CFO in Toronto going forward? It's a, That's a great question, Nee. Uh, we don't know yet what the plans are, whether it's going to be a temporary reno or a, or, a, or a permanent reno. I have a feeling what we're probably going to get is permanent renos to like the concourses and the and the and the sort of the facilities like bathrooms and 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 concessions and stuff like that addition of temporary stands in the end zones and maybe they'd upgrade the seating in the in the two main main grandstands mm -hmm. which would be good i mean the seats are the seats are nice now i i love my seats i'm 19 rows up on the lower level right behind the argo bench and it's a fantastic view vantage point but if if they made it a permanently like a 45,000 seat stadium that's not good for the argos the cfl is no longer a 45,000 right spectator league it's a 20 to 25,000 spectator league and a 45,000 seat stadium with 20,000 people and it seems like a like a like a not a good thing so I, I don't really favor an expansion of that of that magnitude on a permanent basis I do think what's going to happen in 2026 is that the Argos are going to get hosed on their on their schedule. They're going to be mm. on the road for weeks and weeks mm -hmm. at the start of the season. And it's going to happen in, to the BC Lions as well. 
So that's unfortunate, but it's, that's a cost of doing business, and we're all excited that the World Cup is coming, the Men's World Cup, I should say. But, you know, and I, and I would love it if they would make, you know, more bathrooms, and please, please, uh, whoever's in charge of this, put more water fountains in. There's only two water fountains in the whole bloody place. What? So, you know, the, I, I hope we'll get some of that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But if they decide they're going to put 15,000 seats you know, behind the goal lines permanently, those are not going to be good seats for, for football and they won't sell out in the future. And I don't even know that they would sell out for, for TFC as popular as TFC is, you know, you don't want to be sitting, you know, hundred rows up in the, behind the goal line. That, that's not great. Right. Right. For sure. What about potentially an upgraded York Lions? I'm not sure Lamport's going to be upgraded anytime soon, but what about another location being upgraded? I mean, the Skydome is, looking to be baseball specific in the next few years so that's off the table Mm -hmm. but maybe somewhere else perhaps well you know never say never right i think i think anything's possible um and certainly york has been has been bandied about for a number of years as a potential option for the argos you know you'd obviously somebody's going to bring have to pony up 100 to 150 million dollars because that's that's what it costs i think it costs 150 million dollars to build Tim Hortons Field in Hamilton, and that involved no acquisition of land. That was just the stadium. And it, it I thought that was going to be a bare bones facility, but it's actually a very good facility. It's a very good stadium, a two-tier stadium uh, with lots of charm. Uh, but it cost 150 million bucks, and that was that was uh, going on 10 years ago. So you're going to need something in that range to do it. And I don't I don't see MLSE wanting to pony up that kind of money to build a stadium, a football you know, specific stadium for the Argonauts. Obviously, York university is not going to be interested in doing it so short of some type of a, of a global sporting event coming to toronto that would require you know that type of a stadium and the trouble with that is that when you're talking about like an olympic games or a pan am games or something of that ilk the stadium they need has to have a running track and then mm-hmm. you, when you get a running track you end up with the seats too far from the field mm-hmm. bmo the seats are right on top of the field so i don't see that happening the other thing i would say about the york option is that there's one thing that, it, that we must keep in mind. You know, Skydome was the absolutely best location for sure. It wasn't the best stadium. It was a. It actually was a pretty terrible stadium to watch football in, in my opinion. Uh, it was built as an all-purpose stadium, but it was really skewed towards baseball and against football. The best seats in the place at the 55-yard line are the farthest from the action because of the circular shape of the thing. Hmm. And and the lower level was was pitched too too shallow, so the first ten rows you couldn't sit there because the players on the sideline would block your view. And the five hundred level, the seats are cramped and have no leg room. There's a lot of problems with Skydome, but if location wise, fantastic, right in the center of downtown, hmm. accessible from all directions by car and from all directions by public transit. And BMO is similar, not quite as good, basically accessible from all directions by, well, it is accessible from all directions by car, of course. Any venue in, in, the, in the GTA would be accessible by all directions, from all directions by car, but not any venue would be easily accessible by all directions, from all directions by, by transit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, live, I live west, I live in Burlington, I'm west of, the, of Toronto, and I can get on the GO train and I'm at BMO Field in 45 minutes. If I had to go to York, and I'm not interested in fighting traffic in Toronto, man, I'm I'm in my 60s. I'm I'm done with that. I'm not going on the Gardner or the or the 401 anymore if I can avoid it. I'd have to take the GO train to Union Station and then go on a subway for another, I think, about 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Might get me to York, 
So we're looking at like a two-hour journey in both directions. You think I'm going to be doing that on a Thursday night game? I don't think so. The Argos move to York, I'm kind of out. Like I'll watch them on TV, but I'll only go on weekends. I won't be buying season's tickets. And, you know, the thing is, like, the same might apply to somebody who lives in Pickering. The people that live in Vaughan or, or, or Richmond Hill might love it in York. But people that take transit, it's not, I mean, unless you're on the subway line, York's not easily accessible. So to me, that's not a great solution. You know, yeah, I'd love a football-specific venue. And if they, if they ever got one, I would, I guess I probably would go as much as I could but I would, I would avoid games where I was going to get home at three in the morning. Yeah, for sure. Well, Paul, perhaps the only way to get a football specific stadium is if a big bad shield comes up. <laughs> well, if the NFL comes, it is going to get a football specific stadium. There's no doubt. The NFL is not ever going moving into Skydome. There we go. Regardless of the Blue Jays' plans, that's that's that stadium is not up to NFL standards. So yeah, that could happen. I mean, there's there's obviously people that have been wishing for that. I mean, look, I I got my ridiculous collection of uh, of archival material going back to the to the late '70s. I got I got stories talking about NFL coming to Canada in the mid '80s. You know, in, in 1988 when or in 1989 when Skydome was first opened. Uh, one of the reasons that the Argos were supposedly a commodity that, well, they were a commodity that Harry Ornest bought from Carling O'Keefe, and one of the reasons he he wanted to buy the team supposedly was because it gave him exclusive football rights in the Sky Dome. And one of the reasons Bruce McNall and Gretzky and Candy bought the team in 91 was it gave them exclusive NFL rights, or football rights in the, in the building. And McNall actually did want to bring an NFL team to Toronto as he, as he revealed to me when I interviewed him for the book. Um, it wasn't going to happen. The NFL was not going to screw up the Buffalo franchise and as Skydome really wasn't a suitable venue anyway. But yeah, if it, there, there have been people trying this for, for 40 years uh, and they'll probably be still trying it 20 years from now and maybe eventually it will happen. I mean, sooner or later it probably will. Uh, and when it does, there'll be a football-specific uh, venue, but it won't be a CFL-specific venue. It'll be an NFL-specific venue. It'll be an 80,000-seater as good as, as what they've got in, in Dallas or in Los Angeles. Uh, it'll cost $2 billion, and the franchise will cost $2 billion. And good luck, somebody getting a return on that investment, right? You only have 10 dates a year. There we go. <laughs> well, so far, I mean... By then, the league might have expanded to 40 teams and we might have a 20-game schedule. We know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe, yep, yep. If they can keep football players alive to play that often, yeah. Um, it might be robots playing by them, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. Now, MLSC, let's just... One last quick question before we look at you out of here. Sure. MLSC, they got a, they got a few franchises in there under their umbrella. Let's, let's workshop this idea to get some more attention to the Argos. The Argos have a rolling background. There's a rolling club. Yep. So... MLSC has Toronto FC, they've got the Maple Leafs, they've got the, the Raptors, and the Argonauts we've talked about at length. So what about this in the summertime? The MLSC boat race on Lake Ontario. <laughs> have all four franchises have a boat, and they row across the lake, and money goes to charity. How it's actually that? a very cool idea. <laughs> I love it. It would it would bring attention to the Argonauts brand and it would be a fundraiser for charity. That's that's a brilliant idea. There we go. I think we need to work on that and we can see if the Maple Leafs can actually pull their weight for once. <laughs> yeah, well we'll see. You know, we'll get McLeod Bethel Thompson rowing against Mitch Marner and see who's stronger. <laughs> there we go. There we go. We'll see if the 
the least can get past the first turn. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, can, right. That's right. Can they can they get to the finals? That's right. Can they not <laughs> can they not capsize? There'll be no <laughs> there'll be no boss involved, so I'm sure that'll be a thing. No, I don't want to. I don't want to be too hard on the Leafs. I mean, I I, I feel for long suffering Leaf fans. I, I'm no longer one myself. I was as a kid, and I switched to the Red Wings when I was a pretty young man. And uh, my dad's a diehard Leaf fan, and I feel so bad that you know. It was, Basically, as long as I've I've been, I mean, I was born in '57, but I didn't really start paying attention to sports until 1968, and so as long as I've been paying attention to sports, he's never known the joy of a Leaf Stanley Cup, and luckily we've known the joy of uh, of seven or so Argonaut Grey Cup championships together. But uh, I would love the Leafs to win the cup one more time before my dad is gone, and I hope it happens. One of these years, it'll happen. Probably should have happened in the last couple of years, but anyway. Uh, I won't go any further with that. Um, <laughs> now, you've given us a bold prediction that the, the Argonauts could potentially win the Grey Cup. Do you want to hold with that, or do you have another bold prediction you'd like to give our audience before we let you go? Well, I'm going to hold with that one for sure. I, I do believe, I, I'm going to say, I think it is going to happen. I, I've just got, it's funny, I I will tell you, Nee, like I've been wrong before, right? I've been, there are years when I've been sure the Argos were going to win and they didn't win. But there have been a few years when I just had a really strong intuitive feeling somewhere along the way during the season. And one of them was 2004 and one of them was 2017. And though both those years, they were, they were kind of middle of the pack team. I think in 04, they were 10 and eight and 2017, they were, they were, they ended up year nine and nine, but they were only two and five after their first seven games. But there was just something, there was something about the makeup of that team in 2017 that I, I felt certain where they're going to win the gray cup. And I got this a very similar feeling this year. So uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm just going to tell your listeners, uh, to expect on November the 20, whatever it is, the 23rd or whatever the date is, uh, expect to see uh, Double Blue hoisting the hoisting the chalice. There we go. All right. We're going to have to head over to Sports Interaction and our, our other betting partner, BetUS, to jump on that. Now, there you go. We can jump on Twitter and follow at PXW13. Yes. Paul, do you have any other social media where we can follow you? Uh, well, people can find me on Facebook, uh, but I'm also, I have a, I actually have a website, uh, sort of designed to promote, uh, the year of the rocket and also the fact that I've been doing a bit of, a bit of production work. I'm trying to try to work my way into the documentary, uh, film production field and with some, some interesting, uh, nibbles of things going on. So, uh, paulwoodsmedia.com. People who are hardcore Argo fans have probably seen me. I'm a, I'm a regular contributor to uh, the Argo fans uh, f- uh, forums and various other CFL forums, and I I do it under my either under my name, typically under Paul Woods 13 or PW 13, so I don't hide my identity at all. And uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with me directly, I'm happy to give my email address. It's paulwoods13 at gmail.com. If anybody wants uh, either of the books, get in touch. Uh, I'll, I'll find a way. To hook you up there we go we appreciate that and we appreciate your time on the show paul yeah thank you very much gentlemen it was really fun it was a pleasure having you boss thanks for tuning into the podcast for even more of your favorite sports content be sure to visit the website www.prosportspodcasters.com on our website you will find our sports blog full podcast library access to our youtube channel and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our insider tips, sponsor giveaways, and insider newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcast's experience, where no sport is left behind.